Welcome, everyone. This is Sarah Jamshidi. Very welcome to our first, first episode, Peace Mindedly. It's the show that we feature peaceful bridge makers, those people who are dedicating their lives perhaps to um, connecting souls, ideas, thoughts, cultures, nations. And I am so grateful for the guest that I have, Lauren Marshall. Hi, Lauren. So Lauren is the author of many plays and musicals, uh, including Waiter. There is, uh, there is a slug in my latte. I, I assume that this is an interesting, funny uh, musical. And The Tenth Hundredth Eye, an award, and also an award-winning contemporary adaption of misanthrope her latest work is abraham's land uh, we are going to talk about abraham's land and its production and basically how uh, uh, how it took place uh, lauren holds a ba uh, and um, jd uh, from stanford uh, she also holds the uh, mfa in music theater writing from new york university uh, she held position as the producing artistic director uh, of seattle public theater and now she's a founding director of Theater of Possibilities, serving youth with autism. And the way she's saying this disability, I really love because she puts the disability into parentheses and then says ability. I'm sure that you have lots of comments about that. But um, today we are going to talk specifically about Abraham's Land, a play that I've seen a few months ago and I just uh, enamored and uh, truly liked the play. And I I invited Lauren to talk with us about the play. Before diving into the uh, Q&A and the conversation, I asked uh, in our pre-interview and in our preparation, I asked Lauren if she can tell us what she means, what peace means to her. Okay, Lauren, it's uh, now back to you. Sure. Well, Abraham's Land is a play that has to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and I'm Jewish-American. And, uh, but before I dive into that, um, I think Sarah wanted me to talk about peace in a very personal way. And so I've had um, kind of an epith epiphany in my own life about that. It, in that when I was younger, I always thought of peace as this perfect harmonious state. And I love nature and I would always, my, my ideal state was, you know, a beautiful lake by a mountain and everything was, you know, the sunshine was warm and there were no mosquitoes and everything was really perfect. And one day, it was Christmas Day, there was a big snowstorm in Seattle, and my husband and I went on a walk in Discovery Park. And it was one of those beautiful days that really could have been uh, a picture on a calendar. And there was an old church, and there was a hillside, and children were sledding down the hill. And it was so harmonious, except that my boots were wet, and uh, because we'd been walking in the snow, they were soaked through, my pant legs were wet, I was hungry, my husband and I were not quite in the same mood. One of us wanted, I wanted to stay out and hike some more. He wanted to go home and have lunch. And I realized that peace inevitably encompasses tension. And that here I was in this picture postcard picture and I was at peace, but there were tensions too. And when I extrapolate from that to larger conflicts and situations, I realized that Peaceful coexistence is a precarious balance and it, it has to accommodate imperfection. It has to accommodate disagreement, conflict. But the difference between P 
peace and war is 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 really the magnitude of suffering. And I think a lot of times with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know, Israel's saying, well, we'll have peace when there's security. And they're sort of waiting until there is no tension or there's this concern of, well, if we do make peace with our Palestinian neighbors, you know, will we be able to get along? Well, maybe it won't always be easy, but it's got to be better than the alternative of homes being bulldozed and uh, people being locked up and tortured and soldiers gunning down children. And so to me, peace, it encompasses discomfort, but there's beauty within that balance. And then uh, beauty within that balance perhaps um, made you think about how you can uh, put those beauty and balance uh, on 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 words wasn't it yes so well, tell in, us. in the play, in the, play. Uh, the way the play opens it opens with three prayers there's a uh, uh, a jewish blessing the sabbath blessing uh the a, a christian prayer which is the lord's prayer um actually sung in aramaic and then the muslim call to prayer in arabic and the three prayers are interwoven in um, I, the way I described it in the script, as I said, a, a beautiful cacophony of sounds. So there is a harmony in how those prayers are interwoven, but there's some dissonance too. And the the actors are coming onto stage, they're all holding candles and they're interweaving among one another. And so that is the vision of what could be a peaceful coexistence that isn't without, it isn't without tension, but it's still beautiful. Where is tension in the play? Would you like me to tell you yes, the synopsis yes. of the plot? Okay, so the story of the play is uh, it's set uh, during the first intifada, so approximately 1990, and uh, an Israeli soldier, Yitzhak, uh, uh, shoots a young Palestinian named Ismail at a demonstration in Jerusalem uh, because he perceives that Ismail is threatening him. And afterwards, he realizes that Ismail was unarmed and he feels remorse and he goes on it and he's haunted by Ismail's ghost. And he ends up going on a journey to Ismail's home in a refugee camp in Gaza to return his identity card and ask forgiveness of, of Ismail's family. And through that course of the journey, he sees the good of the other side. He also sees some of the evil that is done by his own side, he ends up at, 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 for a time even spending time as a Palestinian in an Israeli prison. And ultimately he's forced to choose between his duty as a soldier and his desire to follow his conscience and do the right thing. The play has a long history. I originally developed it as a Jewish Arab collaboration with Hannah Eady, who is a Palestinian uh, director living in the Seattle area. And uh, with a composer named David Nafisian, who is both Jewish and Muslim Iranian in his ancestry, and I'm American Jewish. So it was a Jewish collaboration from the very beginning. We did research in the Middle East and had kind of groups, kind of advisory groups that included um, many Jews and Arabs, including um, the late poet Hussein Barghouti from the West Bank and some really amazing people that were part of our original concept group for the play. And actually that story of the soldier came out of stories that we shared in, in, that, in that original group. And then the play was further developed with Israeli and Palestinian teenagers at Seeds of Peace camp in Maine. So 
It has been performed twice, once in 1992, the original version in Seattle, and then in 1999 by the teenagers at Seeds of Peace. This is a brand new version of the play. Um, I felt that it was time to bring it back because of things that were going on, just starting around 2014 when the occupation became increasingly brutal with the bombardment of Gaza and the things that we've seen in the news since. I just felt really compelled as a Jewish American that I needed to speak out critically about the occupation. Uh, one thing uh, before we go uh, too much forward. So you said that when you were camped, the states of peace, and then uh, the the original um, thought about the play uh, came about. Can you tell me a bit more about what happened? What intrigued you, inspired you, that you thought this is something you would like to encounter? So the original concept, it's very old. <laughs> I might be revealing my age, but 1990. It was 1991 during the first Gulf War. And there were um, images on TV of Jordanians protesting against Israel. And, you know, some of the some of it was against Israel, but they were also saying things like death to the Jews. And I watched that and I wondered what's going on. And I was like, why? Who are these people? Why do they hate me? I need to understand this. And being young and idealistic, I said, I need to find somebody who's Arab and write a play. Let's write a play together. And I found Hana Edi. He was a graduate directing um, student at the UW at that time. He had just directed Seeing Double, which is by San Francisco Mind Group. Very funny play, also about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I found him backstage and I said, I want to write a play with you. And he said, okay. <laughs> we created the play. Uh, I did do research over there. I went on a, a compassionate listening group. And actually, it was very intense where I spent the night in uh, two different refugee camps with families, um, you know, talked to people on all sides, visited Jewish settlements, visited homes, really, really powerful. And it was during the first intifada too. How so come? How come? Why it was powerful to you? Well, I saw how people's lives were affected. And, you know, I, I remember there was a young man, this was in, um, Uh, gosh, I hope I'm not mixing up my names. Um, it was the refugee, uh, Jalazun, Jalazun in the West Bank, Jalazun. I'm, we went to Jabalia also in Gaza, but this is Jalazun. And this young man led us through the camp and he showed us the rubble where the homes were destroyed. And we learned about, you know, we talked to the families where everybody had a brother who was in jail or, you know, somebody who had been shot in the foot or somebody who had been shot in the head and was you know, forever brain damage. I mean, it was just really tragic. But what really struck me about this young man as he toured us through the camp was he had this big smile on his face and he was funny and he would crack jokes. And eventually we got back to their little community center and we all sat down and he said, okay, enough talking about the conflict. Let's talk about something else. And so he told us all about, you know, he told us about arranged marriages and and how they kind of arranged the marriages over the coffee. And that, that ultimately became a song in, in the play. It was very fun. But I was so struck by his ability to have optimism and levity in the face of the conflict. And he became the model for the character of Ismail in the play. 
Mm -hmm. So you say that um, uh, you were in a coffee, I mean, how the arranged marriage basically came out during the coffee drinking, and then you just took that part, uh, perhaps a part in your play. And I'm now thinking that should we, as, um, you know, I mean, just people, uh, be too cautious around writers, because they just may, <laughs> may mold us and, and reshape us uh, within uh, within their image, in their image, to to create a character. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> they say what artists, great artists steal. I don't know if I'm a great artist, but yes, we do. We anything you say could be used could be used in a play. <laughs> yeah. So I I wonder who did you take your um, Ishmael from and um, Yitzhak? Well, so Ishmael was inspired Ishmael. by this young Ishmael. man. It tells uh -huh. you. Yitzhak was harder because I didn't have a single person for him. You know, I see him as kind of a, he's kind of a classic good Jewish boy, what we call a minch, right? He wants to do we the call, right thing. A minch, a minch, a good minch. It's tell Yiddish me more. Term. Yeah, it's yeah, Yiddish tell term. Me. It means a good man. All right. So I guess if I, you know, if there was a model for him, maybe it would be my first cousin, who I think is just a really nice young man, but, uh, but he's not Israeli. Uh, he's American. But Yitzhak, he's been, you know, he, his mother is a Holocaust survivor. Uh, his father's from Syria. So he is part Ashkenazi and part what we call Mizrahi Jew, right? An Arab Jew. Um, so he grew up speaking both Hebrew and Arabic. He wants to do the right thing. He, he And he has a song early in the play where he talks, he says Israel is, is the most moral army in the world. And he actually chides one of the other soldiers for not not being respectful towards the Palestinians at a checkpoint. And he says, we can basically, we can do better than that. And so I think his beliefs were very emblematic of a lot of the soldiers I, that I talked to when I was in Israel in 1991, where there was, at that time anyway, there was kind of a belief that, well, we, we have to do this occupation, but we're going to try to be as moral as we can about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where he starts. Um, but then he sees his own, when he faces the reality of what he's just done, when he's shot somebody, he knows deep down in his heart that that shooting was not justified. I mean, the other soldiers say, yeah, he was threatening you, you know, you were justified. But he knows that he shot impulsively out of anger because his own brother had died in Lebanon. And when he saw this young Arab man raising a kufiya and leading the crowd on, the first thing he thought of was his brother being killed. And he felt that pulse, that just rush of anger and he pulled the trigger. And so as he, as with Yitz, with Ismail's ghost kind of prodding him, kind of acting as a voice of conscience, he really goes on this journey of conscience and he examines his soul and he realizes that he, that, his actions were unjustified, which is why he wants to make amends. The play actually takes place in the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So that those are the Jewish, we call them the high holy days, but it's the 10 days of atonement where you atone for your wrongs. And so he goes, he meets Ismail's, he initially goes to Gaza disguised as a Palestinian and he meets Ismail's sister, Amira, and he feels a lot of compassion for her suffering, feels a bond with her. And he ends up getting when soldiers come to arrest Amira because she's teaching, she's a school teacher and she's teaching in violation of the prohibitions that require the schools to be closed. 
uh, Yitzhak takes the blame. He, he says he's the teacher and he gets arrested in her place. So that's how he ends up experiencing what it's like to be a Palestinian prisoner. And uh, it's only when he's been released from prison, when he finally tells his, you know, his captors who he really is, they send him back to Gaza because at that, at that point, um, Ismail's uh, cousin Fatih has been is so angered by the unjust shooting of Ismail and the um, that that the authorities haven't even returned his body. They can't get any information. Um, he ends up organizing a, a retaliation, a retaliatory act. And uh, there's a there's a suicide, a young woman who does a suicide bombing. And so when Yitzhak is released from prison, he's sent back to Gaza to try to find the identity of the bomber. And he's sort of forced to spy on Amir. And that's where he has to make that choice between his loyalty. And he he goes full, he goes full. I, I don't want to say exactly what the ending is, but I will say that his in his journey, he goes from under believing that the occupation can be moral to realizing that there is no such thing as a moral occupation, that the occupation is immoral. And that um and well, ultimately he refuses to serve. I will say that. Um, so the model for him is really um, a lot of the stories that come out of breaking the silence. Those are from Israeli soldiers who have have exper- have been in the IDF and have seen what's going on and have refused to serve. So I read a lot of their stories. So those are really the model for Yitzhak. And I will say we haven't we're in the process of casting right now, and so I can't announce names or anything yet. But it's very very likely that we will have an Israeli actor, an amazing performer who has served in the IDF and a Palestinian actor um, wow. in, in the play. And I'm very mm-hmm. excited about that. <laughs> so you mentioned Holocaust and then you mentioned um, how we can ever justify uh, occupation back in, um, um, in in Palestine. I've seen the move. Uh, I've seen the play, a reading reading of the play, and I know that at least in my opinion, when I was uh, watching, I was thinking um, the play is um, unorthodoxically, if if it's the, the right word to use, uh, so pro Palestine, and then. And then I'm. I was thinking exactly that. Uh, you know, I was just putting myself, perhaps, uh, for the sake of um, comparison, uh, putting myself in the in the in the shoes of someone who has experienced Holocaust. And today is the Holocaust Remembrance Day. And thinking, so how they would think or um, or uh, react over the play. Um, so I, I, I'm just curious to know uh, what have been uh, the response uh, from people who are so t- take Israel very close to their hearts. Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, it, it varies quite a lot. Uh, my my parents' generation, um, my you know my my family was lucky that they you know my grandparents left Europe before the Holocaust, and so my. My parents, um, well, my grandparents were the immigrants. And so my parents grew up here, came, you know, came of age during the Holocaust. And, um, you know, they had a very hard time with the play. They're no longer alive. But um, when I came back from from the Middle East and I I wrote an article that was published in a lot of newspapers and my parents, you know, they had a hard time with it. At first they said, you've been brainwashed. And uh, my aunt... um, she read a draft of the play not that many years ago. And she said, you just don't understand. You don't understand why 
why we have to have the Jewish state. Um, if you had, you know, if you'd grown up during the Holocaust, you would understand. But I, I, I look at it differently. And I think a lot of progressive Jews and especially people of my generation and younger are starting to look at it differently. And what where what the lesson I draw from the Holocaust Holocaust is never again, meaning not only never again can we let this happen to us, but never again can this happen to anybody. We and that we have a moral duty to to really prevent injustice in the world. And so, you know, it's it to to draw a comparison is very is very touchy and and you know with there, there are lines in the play where Ismail accuses Yitzhak and he says, you know, look around you that look what you've created, you know, a camp surrounded by barbed wire and watchtowers. And he basically says that this is this is the, the Holocaust, that you are doing this to us. And and some of the stories that have come out of Gaza lately, you know, really start to smack of genocide when you're talking about, you know, some of the what the soldiers who have who have in breaking the silence, they talk about how people have have really just shot indiscriminately without cause at innocent people. So it starts to get very, very disturbing. And, you know, you can, you can quibble and say, oh, well, that's not the same as extermination camps, but it's getting, it's getting far, far too close. So as a Jewish person, you know, our, one of our core values is this notion of tikkun olam, is that we have a duty to repair the world. And so, you know, I'm not the most observant person in the world in terms of, you know, going to synagogue or that kind of thing. We, we do celebrate the holidays at home, but I, I am very observant when it comes to Jewish values. And I feel like if, if there's one thing I can do to help make a better world, it is to speak out against injustice and not just injustice towards Jews, but injustice by Jews towards other people. Um, so my own views on Zionism have changed quite quite a lot over the course of the play uh, um, of my, you know, three decades working on this play. I think early on, I still felt that there was a need for a Jewish homeland. Um, it was certainly a natural response to the Holocaust. So I understand historically where that came from. Um, and I'm probably, I, I think I, I, I favored you know, a two-state solution. So there would be a Jewish homeland and a Palestinian homeland. And I, I'm not adverse to that. If, if they can work that out, you know, more power to them, it would be great. But the reality is such that um, with the settlements and the water issues that it's looking very less and less likely that that will ever happen. Um, and I guess I would say it's probably, where I've come to is realizing that that that's kind of a false dream and maybe not just from a practicality standpoint, but more from an, really from a principle standpoint that I, I've started to question the whole premise of Zionism, that I think that um, Zionism was an outgrowth of European nationalism, right? That, that each ethnic group should have its own nation. And so if the Germans can have their Aryan nation, well, then we Jews should have our Jewish nation. Um, so it's really a perpetuation of the very ideology that allowed the Holocaust to happen. Mm -hmm. And I see that ideology as pernicious. And I see that American values, which right now are under threat, but American values at their ideal of multiculturalism, of pluralism, really, to me, are much, much better values. And people say, well, don't you believe in this, you know, the Israel's right to exist? Well, absolutely, I believe in Israel's right to exist. But that doesn't mean 
that Israel needs to exist as a Jewish state. It can exist as a state for Jews and Muslims and Christians. And with uh, it wouldn't, won't be easy, but that's where we get to that, you know, that peace isn't easy, right? There's still going to be your boots soaked through with water, you know, and you're still going to be a little hungry and there's still going to be some conflict with your husband. Peace has discord, but you could, if there was the will to make peace, it would be possible to def to create some sort of one state solution, whether that's a federation with Palestinian sections and Jewish and Israeli sections, or I don't know, I leave that to the, the political leaders, but I think the will is there, you could create um, a, a possibility for all peoples to coexist in that. Uh, for the second part of our discussion, um, we chose to uh, play, I, I have it on my iPhone, so I'm just going to play out of my iPhone and then we go into a discussion. But uh, it's from the Garden of Infinite Path. And can you tell us about what's happening in this uh, in this conversation? Yes, yes. So uh, this is an excerpt from, I, I'll say this is a demo recording. It doesn't have full orchestration. It's just the singers and piano. But it's it uh, it's from the play. So uh, Yitzhak, the soldier, he has shot Ismail, and he has realized that Ismail was unarmed and that the shooting was a really bad mistake. He feels guilty. He disguises himself as a Palestinian and travels. He has Ismail's identity card, and so he travels to Ismail's home in a refugee camp, uh, Darabala camp in Gaza to return the identity card and just to kind of find out who was this guy. He's not even yet planning to ask for forgiveness. He's just trying to figure out, was he a good guy or a bad guy? He's curious. And he ends up uh, walking into a schoolhouse where he meets Ismail's sister, Amira, and she's a teacher. And she has just learned the day before that her brother was killed. She's still kind of reeling from the grief. And she sees this person as she believes he's a friendly, a friend, a Palestinian who was a friend of Ismail's who's brought her the card. She doesn't know that he's really the soldier. And in the course of this song, which is a duet, they're both really searching for meaning in the aftermath of his death. Excellent. Let us listen to the, I'm, I'm playing out of my iPad. Oh, now has a gaping hole I fight to control my wrath I fear we'll choose an angry path I fear a deadly aftermath We're in a struggle Then what should be my part? I try to teach my students That violence and vengeance Have no place anywhere in our belief But what to do with all this grief I'm in a struggle It's tearing me apart I've lost my way I'm trying hard to not lose heart To not lose heart So here's the question I'm asking in a garden of infinite paths Which path do I choose When one path leads to war And one path leads to peace But either way we lose That's the same question I'm asking Tell me 
Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, the same question. Yes. Yes, yes. And then Yitzhak sort of sings from his perspective, too, what he's experiencing as a soldier, except she doesn't really know that he's a soldier. So I can't help to ask uh, this question. I'm from Iran. And then this issue of Palestine and Israel, it's usually a very hot topic. So there is an old saying in, in my culture. Um, so if I translate it in English, it says they killed a, a, a locksmith in Samarkand. And they just explains in the poems that who are they and what. And a carpenter was beheaded in um, in Bach. So and then usually the um, analogy goes into um, into in 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 Iran and Iran interpretation that okay so uh, many Jews have got killed in Holocaust and I mean atrocious extremely unthinkable happened to this population and later a different nation other than the, the the nation that has imposed the violence against the jews are paying price and then i i can't help to think about this uh, this analysis and i wanted to see how you how you interpret yes i almost wonder if i should read a passage from the play that addresses that would you mm. like me to? I, yes, yes. <laughs> this is this is not this is not the eulogy, which I, I I know I want to read for you also, but I think this goes so much to the point because this is an argument between Yitzhak and, and Ismail. Would it be okay if I read a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely, I love that. Yes, yes. Please, okay, please and let me let me preface that I'm not an actor; I'm a playwright. So, yes. um, but um, so this is this is the the penultimate scene in the play where where uh Yitzhak he's been through his whole journey he's been in a prison he's come back he's confessed to Amira that he is the soldier who shot her brother he's asked uh Amira's father for forgiveness and basically the father says well yeah I can forgive you but I I can't I can't stop the angry young men like Fatih the cousins you know I have no control and you're going to have to deal with them. And so uh, Yitzhak is running from the angry mob and he encounters Ismail, who's a ghost, but kind of acts like a real person um, one last time. And they have this confrontation and, and Ismail asks Yitzhak, he says, why did you shoot me? And this is Yitzhak's response. He says, I was afraid. I thought you were threatening me. When one of your people raises a stone, I don't just see a stone. I see a sea of hostile faces that spreads from here to Baghdad to Tripoli. I see the whole history of our people. I see five wars. I see my brother David being killed by one of you. I see the Holocaust. Ismail responds, every Israeli, same story. I'm tired about, of hearing about your suffering and your pain. Enough already. I didn't send your people to a concentration camp. Yitzhak, I never said you did, Ismail, but you punish me for it. Look around you. What do you see? A camp surrounded by watchtowers and barbed wire. Do you see the rubble? That's from our homes you demolish. Do you smell the sewage? That's from our taxes, which go to pay for your military police. And if we violate your rules, rules that you make because we have no citizenship, no right to vote, you shoot us in the head. And you want me to feel sorry for you? I don't care about your Holocaust. At that point, Yitzhak. Amazing. Strikes yes. Ismail, they actually have a physical struggle. 
Ismail realizes that Yitzhak has been wounded because of his experience having suffered torture in prison. And, and anyway, they do it. They do. They, they come to an understanding. But, so basically, but I, basically, we know. Basically, we know that um, these uh, unjust has happened, but perhaps um, we it's just for to, for being politically correct, or or for whatever reason we have to, um, yeah, turn heads. Maybe I don't know. Well, I think Yitzhak says, you know, after the two men reconcile, he he realizes, you know, the abuse becomes the abuser. That that that. And I think that's how you really have to look at it, that the the Jews collectively have have been abused. And so they are really, to a large extent, they are acting out of fear. And, and that's where that comes from. Um, that doesn't excuse it. And you have to be really careful. Um, there's an earlier song in the play where uh, right after Yitzhak realizes that Ismail was unarmed and it's called the victim. And he, he sort of asked, why do I feel like the victim when I'm the one who's in control here? You know, and it's, it's really about how each side does feel like the victim. But I, but I think you, you can understand it from that standpoint, but that doesn't justify it. That, 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 that's where it's time for, for people to stand up and say, okay, enough already. Let's stop this cycles of abuse. And, um, and your security doesn't come from shutting out other people, right? Your security comes from embracing them, from from living together, from forgiveness, because it's Israel is not secure now. I mean, they have to build walls and rockets come over the walls. You know, you you can never create security that way. Not, it, I think someone once said, you know, our it was either a fortress or a tomb, right? That those were, our, uh, one of the leaders of Israel, Israel once said that, and, well, those are not acceptable solutions. Who wants to live in a fortress, right? Exactly. And, and obviously no one wants a tomb. So there, you know, there is, you got to break down the walls and build a garden, I say. Um, that's the only answer. I mean, I think that's why it's, um, what I'm hoping to do with the play, why, um, why I think it's important for me. This was my next question. Out. Yeah. Good. Is I, I feel like if, um, I mean, if American Jews speak out, we can start to change the dialogue. I, I think America does have a huge influence on Israel. We are in a power. We have, I mean, we, we have the opportunity to make a difference. Um, and that if we can change the dialogue here in America, so that criticism of Israel is not equated with anti-Semitism, they're not the same thing. And that's just a cheap shot that a lot of people use, right? That uh, my criticism of Israel is coming from a place of Jewish love. And uh, and love for all humanity, but I, I I think if it becomes safer for American Jews to speak out, it will then become safer for non-Jews to speak out because then they won't be accused of anti-Semitism. So I think we we kind of have to be leaders in changing the dialogue around Israel. I mean, nobody had qualms about speaking out about apartheid in South Africa. We need to we need to take a similar stance on Israel, um, and it can Absolutely. come from love. I mean, I have friends who are Israelis, and I. I, I, I want to see an end to suffering. I, I, you know, I have, I have a friend who made Aliyah and her son is 14 years old and he's going to have to join the army one of these days. And I don't want to see these young people grow up and have to do that. Um, Lauren, what difference do you, do you want to see? What, what, what differences? What, what change? What change? Well, I mean, I want to see peace. I want to see 
you know, the end of the occupation. I want to, um, you know, how we get there is is a hard part. I mean, I think there are obviously political strategies to get there. I, you know, I, uh, one of the issues that has come up with the play is the issue of violence, right? Um, you know, because I mentioned Fatih, he, he organizes a suicide bombing. And one of my friends who's an activist, you know, she's not Jewish or, or, or Arab, but she came to the play and she said, you know, you need to show that that violence is sometimes the only solution. And I, I had a hard, I have a little bit of a hard time with that because I don't really think violence is ever a solution. I can understand why people are pushed to it. I think there are better strategies um, that are more effective and more likely to lead to peace. I think social media is a really powerful one. I have a friend in um, Gaza, a really good Facebook friend. He's now doing, um, his name is Allah Sakar and he runs a group called Palestine Charity Team and they um, provide humanitarian assistance to families in Gaza. He's now going to grad school in Egypt, lovely young man. You know, and he uses social media very effectively to recount what's going on there and, and spread the word. So I think that's a tool that people can use. I think, um, obviously, I don't want to go into BDS because I know it's so controversial, but that is a tool. There, you know, there are lots of ways. I think, I think ultimately America's politicians will need to put pressure on Israel and Americans can help that happen. But it also has to come within Israel. There probably needs to be a government change there. And so, you know, it's it's a combination of the carrot and the stick or the olive, you know, the olive branch. I mean, Yasser Arafat had a famous line, right? I come bearing the olive branch in one hand and the gun in the other. Don't let me drop the, the olive branch. Um, I hope that this can be achieved with the olive branch. There was a should I tell the story about the tile maker? I do, I do. And this was again, you are usually okay. ahead of me. <laughs> That's amazing. I, well, because it's how we get to peace. So yeah. when I was when I was in Jerusalem, this was in 1991. I, I spent a wonderful day traveling through the four quarters of the old city um, with my tour group and my friends, and we 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 came to a little um, a, a, a tile maker store in the Armenian quarter. And which was chatting with the man and he was showing us the different designs and he showed us how he had taken the four corner pieces from um, another tile and put them together to create a new design. And he was very proud of that. Um, and we started talking about the conflict. We were asking him, well, you know, do you like it better? Did you like it better under Jordan um, or under Israel? And, and he had opinions on that. He said that um, being under Jordan was actually better for his pocketbook because the Israeli government tended to promote uh, Jewish tourism over non-Jewish tourism. But he liked the freedoms under Israel. So he kind of liked both. He said, if I had my druthers, I'd go back. To, I care more about my pocketbook. So he said he'd go back to Jordan. But then we asked his opinion about the conflict. And he said, well, you know, here's the problem. He said, our leaders, they're, they're not creative enough. If they really wanted a solution, they could, but they're overlooking the corner pieces. And so, you know, he likened it to the tile. If you could put the, take the corner pieces and put them together in a new way, a creative way, you could find a solution. And I, I just thought there was a lot of wisdom in that. I think what that solution will look like is we haven't found it yet because we haven't looked at the corner pieces. Um, it's probably not purely a two-state solution or purely a one-state solution. It's probably some very creative federation that preserves the rights of Jewish people, Muslim people, and Christian people. It can be done, right? It's Canada does it with Quebec, yes. right? Does does the play address any any solution? Or uh, yeah, should I read the eulogy? Yes, yes. Okay. Um. So, uh, 
So at the very end of the play, I am giving away more than I should, but that's okay. You still have to come see it. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the, the song that I just played, can you ever I mean, resist against not going and seeing the play? Yeah, you have the, to. Our performers will be amazing. And, yeah. and the music is really powerful. And the director, John Vicky, has just a brilliant vision. But so anyway, this is at the very end uh, or towards the very end. Isma, the, the 10 days have um, from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur have run their course. And uh, we hear the shofar and the Avinu Makeno, which is the Jewish song that signals the onset of Yom Kippur. And Ismail has left Yitzhak. His ghost has finally uh, been admitted to heaven um, because they've reconciled. And and so now Yitzhak is left over Ismail's body uh, with his identity card. And he has the realization because um, he hears the Avinu Makeno and he says, it's Yom Kippur. On Rosh Hashanah, fate is written, but not sealed until 10 days later on Yom Kippur. And in those 10 days, you can make changes. And he picks up the identity card and he starts to read it. Ismail Mansour, dear Abala Camp. No, not like that. Ismail Mansour, from the land of orange groves and olive trees, the shiny blue sea and the sweet waters of the River Jordan, from the land of ancient temples and stone walls, the Muzans call to prayer, a minion chanting, church bells, wedding bells, and the sounds of children laughing. Not Gaza, not Palestine, not even Israel, but the country we all share, Abraham's land. And with that, he throws away the identity card. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, you were watching me, Lauren, uh, talking absolutely about Abraham's land and about um, uh, this interesting play. Thank you. Uh, for the office. For the office.